0: Welcome to the Closer Than You Think podcast. This is Mark Scott, and we are in our 10-part series related to the book, You Don't Have to Do That. This is part two. We're going to dig into chapter one. The focus of chapter one is religion, and it is actually entitled Religion Versus Jesus. And the reason it's entitled that is because right off the bat, we want to jump into the idea that these are actually not... um, Synonyms. These are opposing forces in many ways, and often is the case that what Jesus is teaching and promoting and what religion is teaching and promoting are two very different things, and often they conflict with each other and contrast with one another. This chapter gets into several topics, including the characteristics of Christ's love, what it means to be chosen by Christ, the purpose of religion, and why people become religious in the first place, the distinction between the Old and New Covenants as presented in the Bible and more. We will not get into all of that here. We will not discuss all of that. So hopefully you will read the book. But I will be sharing some excerpts from chapter one as we dig into other parts of it. So as I did last time, I'm going to read right out of the book itself. And you might hear me thumbing through some pages. Chapter one, page one. It opens with a quote by Watchman Nee. Watchman Nee is a Chinese, or was, excuse me, a Chinese church leader and Christian teacher in the 20th century, was persecuted and imprisoned for his faith. Uh, He wrote quite a bit, and this quote is from his book, The Normal Christian Life. Here it goes. Grace means that God does something for me. Law means that I do something for God. God has certain holy and righteous demands which he places upon me. That is law. Now, if law means that God requires something of me for their fulfillment, then deliverance from law means that he no longer requires that from me, but himself provides it. Law implies that God requires me to do something for him. Deliverance from law implies that he exempts me from doing it and that in grace, he does it himself. I need do nothing for God. That is deliverance from law. Watchman me. So I use that quote because not only does it start this chapter, it sets the stage for the whole premise of the book. As I open the chapter with the first two sentences, question, what must I do for God? Answer, Nothing. That is what you have to do for God. This is not the message of religious Christianity. And that is the issue. It is the issue that draws the most criticism of my work in this book. Telling people they need to do nothing for God sounds irresponsible. It sounds even blasphemous, heretical, sacrilegious. Um, It just doesn't sit right with us. So it's important that we dig into this concept and this idea early on. So here's how it begins. What must I do for God? Nothing. That is what you have to do for God. Religion has neatly provided us a formula for being a good Christian. The marks of discipleship are outlined for us under the premise that trusting and receiving cannot be enough. We are told to read the Bible, go to church, tithe, and try our best. It is entirely based on our activity and effort. Religion's top story would probably be the little Christian that could. I can do better at following Jesus if I just think I can, and use my willpower every day to keep showing that I am worthy enough. Religion tells me how to behave, how to act right. As Steve McVeigh points out, though, if contemporary Christians spent as much time developing loving intimacy with Christ as they spend in defining proper Christian behavior, the world would be in a different place. To see what Jesus did as forming a religion grossly diminishes his impact. God was not sending advice or direction in the form of Jesus. He was sending himself. He wanted to be with us. Perhaps more than anything else, The worst mischaracterization of Christianity is that it is a religion. It was never meant to be a religion. It is and always has been a relationship. However, this notion of Jesus as a founder of a religion is so prevalent that it needs to be confronted by his own message and ministry. We can look at how he asked questions, how he presented the gospel, how he prayed and how and what he taught repeatedly. I am confident we will see everything about Jesus as so far from religion and all about a life-transforming relationship. So the reasons for understanding what is wrong with this approach come from Jesus himself, not my opinions, and how the chapter is laid out that way to address uh, the chapter is specifically laid out that way intentionally to address this issue of the problems of religion coming from Jesus himself and his own teachings. So I just shared that it, 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 um, how he taught, how he asked questions, those kinds of things are all included. The other part that I'm going to read from the book itself is how Jesus kicked things off here on pages 2 and 3. Many people have heard of a figure known as John the Baptist, and they know he was a forerunner of Jesus. He is called John the Baptist because he was baptizing people. We don't think much of it now, but the fact that he is known for that is actually incredible. The first chapter of John's gospel made it a point to tell us that John the Baptist was not the Christ, Elijah, or the prophet. He was in the desert and definitely not a part of any religious establishment. He had no credentials, and therefore in the eyes of the religious elite, he had no right to be baptizing anyone. The priests challenged him as to why he was baptizing, since he was not one of the key religious figures, you know, one of their quote-unquote approved vendors. John responded to their criticism by saying he was called and sent to baptize. In other words, he declared God acted outside their religious hierarchy and told him to do it. The next day, following this showdown, John the Baptist was at it again. He was baptizing people in the Jordan River when, cue dramatic movie scene music, Jesus walked up. With the crowd, and likely the priests again, watching, John the Baptist pointed to Jesus and proclaimed, Here he is. This is the one I was telling you about. I baptize with water, but he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. This is the one so much more worthy than me. Here is the Son of God. Dramatic, suspenseful music rises as everyone pauses to see what will happen next. Then, very publicly and very purposefully, Jesus, the Savior of the world, approached John the Baptist, the madman Belittled by the religious leaders, and said, Please baptize me. I'm sure there were jaws on the ground in disbelief. Even John the Baptist was surprised and thought it should be the other way around, with Jesus baptizing him. No doubt the Jewish religious leaders rolled their eyes or sighed in disgust. To the onlookers, this might have been nothing more than one itinerant rabbi without proper authority encouraging another rebel. But so much more happened at that moment. In that event, God ordained the ordinary, giving heaven's endorsement to the man in the wilderness and bypassing the religious structure altogether to christen the ministry of Jesus. Before his first parable was taught, before his first miracle was performed, before his first disciple was invited, Jesus put the world on notice that religion was done. A new way had come. God had indeed used John the Baptist to, quote, make straight the path to the Lord. So the playing field had been leveled for anyone and everyone to enter the kingdom of God. Strangely, many churches 2,000 years later have restrictions in place as to who can baptize others, something Jesus nullified right out of the gate. So that's uh, another section from chapter one. I would encourage you to check out some other posts that I have on Substack related to two different topics. One is baptism. It's called Outsourcing Baptism. You can find that post on my Substack. And there's another one, which is a two-part series called It Is Good to Question. I'm not going to get into that section of chapter one, but it talks about uh, the questions that are posed to Jesus and the questions Jesus poses to others. And um, I think those are worthwhile for you to check out. But back to this topic of religion versus Jesus, the thing I want to stress is that the main issue here is freedom. And so if you are a person who struggles with being set free from a performance trap, as, as I do, trying to measure up, trying to be worthy of God's love and attention, um, anything along those lines, then please read chapter one. What religion does is it ties us down. It binds us literally. uh, And I I get into the source of the word religion. And it means to bind us. And it's toxic. It, It really is. And it's important to deal with this issue right off the bat before all the other topics that I get into in this book, whether it's church or discipleship or tithing or anything like that, because our lives are lived at the intersection of our spirituality and psychology. One influences the other and vice versa. We are whole, complex beings and we are integrated with all these different aspects And what ends up happening is when religion continually creeps in, it becomes an antidote to a joyful, peace filled faith. And religion, the way I'm using it, actually can show up anywhere, even in what we would call secular movements or organizations. It it can be in family systems, it can be in politics. It can be in all kinds of areas. And what I focus on is how it distorts true Christianity in the book. So I'm using it a bit differently from the categorization of of different belief systems. So it's not like religion, Islam, religion, Judaism, like that. It's, It's this idea of what the Christian religion is all about and what it's produced. Although many of the characteristics will will overlap in some ways. So later on um, in chapter 1, pages 14 and 15, that's the last section I'll uh, read uh, as an excerpt from the chapter. And then we'll wrap this up. This section is entitled, Why We Become Religious. It is not my aim in this book to take on all religions of the world. My focus is on the way we have warped Jesus' true message as a Christian religion. However, I do want to interject that what I mean by religious is a fairly broad scope. To me, even godless movements can be extremely religious. I have seen some atheists, evolutionists, and activists, as examples, cross over into religious fervor that would rival any fundamentalist Christian denomination. Watch and listen for how individuals, political parties, and social organizations adopt their version of original sin and prescribe a set of behaviors that followers must do to, quote, repent and seek absolution. Any group can develop its equivalent of clergy, creed, and congregations. Christianity is not the only entity guilty of being religious, but it may be the most pervasive, and it needs to be checked for how it has hijacked the original message of its founder. A common theme among religious initiatives is the desire to change non-members. Unconditional acceptance is the antithesis of religion. Religion starts with the premise that a person wanting in is somehow defective and must be repaired. Here is the irony of religion. It keeps us self-absorbed. Everything is viewed in terms of its effect on me. I am constantly wondering if I am good enough and doing enough. I am diligently seeking God's will for my life. So another aspect that we get into is... Transaction versus transformation, another important concept. Please read chapter 1 to find out more about that. And I lied to you because there's actually one more little uh, section that I want to close with here. And it's from pages 18 and 19 towards the end of of chapter 1. It's called, Where Religion Decreases, Access to Jesus Increases. Religion is our attempt to earn what God has already freely provided. If religion is the way to God, then sin and death still have power. Christian religion borrows from the Old Covenant and tweaks some language, but it still makes sin the activating agent. It says, You are outside of God's will. The action you must take is to repent. You are outside of God's family. The action you must take is to go to church. You are outside of God's provision. The action you must take is to tithe. You don't know enough about God. The action you must take is to study the Bible. In Old Covenant thinking, Jesus is a non-factor. He has no part to play. It makes you the center. In this system, what must you do for God? Everything. The New Covenant flips everything around. Instead of sin, the Spirit is the activating agent. God says, if you think you are outside of God's will, then remember I created you. If you think you are outside of God's family, then remember, I am your father. If you think you are outside of God's provision, then remember you have everything you need and I am your provider. If you think you don't understand me, then ask me. I am your wisdom and I have given you my spirit. In new covenant thinking, Jesus is the only factor. He doesn't just have a part to play, he is the play. He is the center. The new covenant brings us Full circle, back to the first sentence of this chapter, what must you do for God? Nothing. To be honest, I still wrestle with how simplistic this all sounds. It even seems somewhat irresponsible. I wonder how to make sense of certain passages that appear to contradict these truths. However, just because I may not comprehend it fully, I cannot dismiss it. I cannot ignore the reality of grace, abundant Relentless grace. It is only love that remains through grace. For this love to be known, every equation of transactional living must be scrapped. The formula for faith then is I work for God by believing he works in me. This is the mystery of God, the hope of glory. So what I submit to you is that there is a direct inverse correlation between your level of religiosity and your closeness to Christ. The goal is to remove the barriers by exposing where religion creeps in and leads us astray. The whole idea is that while the Christian religion teaches us to follow a plan, Jesus tells us to follow a man, just himself. Christian religion is about a path, But true Christianity is about a person. It's not a path, but a person. And the quote that I end the chapter with is from Steve McVeigh, where he says, God's will is not primarily a path, but a person named Jesus Christ. As we abide in him, it is impossible to miss the will of God. And that's from Steve McVeigh's book, Grace Walk. That is what I wanted to share with you about chapter one of the book that deals with religion and, uh, some reminders that you can purchase the book in lots of different ways. And those are linked in the show notes. Um, I encourage you to subscribe to closer than you think, leave comments, uh, here, review the book on Amazon, share it with others. You can find the book, um, Also, there's links in there to where you can get 10% discount directly from the publisher. And there is a Kindle version as well. Again, all those links are there. That wraps it up for this time. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, God bless.